The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading is from Daniel 10, the chapter, which starts on 748, page 748 of your Pew Bible. And as always, if you don't have a Bible at home, if you'd like to take this Pew Bible home, we'd love to make a gift of that for you. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand What is to happen to your people in the latter days? For the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and I spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant Talk with my Lord, for now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come 
but I will tell you that what is inscribed in the book of truth, there is none who contends by my side against these, except Michael, your prince. The word of the Lord. And now, friends, let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. If you still have a Bible in hand, we're going to turn a few pages forward to the gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Friends, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Uh, For those of you who are new, visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful uh, to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, we are in the season of ordinary time, and we are 10 weeks into our fall sermon series on the Old Testament book of Daniel, which we've been calling Faithful Presence in the City. And we've called it that because through this sermon series, we've been exploring what it meant for exiles from Jerusalem in 6th century BC to be deported from their hometown and their home country and taken off, kidnapped, taken off to the mighty empire of Babylon and to live there as a small and relatively culturally powerless minority. And as we've um, kind of observed and traced that story, we've kind of witnessed along the way stories so famous that they are known in popular culture, stories like Daniel in the lion's den, from the book of Daniel chapter six. But we've also looked at other lesser known parts of this story, what we might call apocalyptic scripture. And as we've examined this, we've been gleaning insights on how we as followers of Jesus today in 2022 in the city of Richmond here might live as a small, relatively culturally powerless minority here in the city. And we've been exploring things like Navigating cultural assimilation, refusing coercion, redeeming humiliation, waiting for justice, receiving the kingdom, persevering to the end. Last week, we talked about confessional humility. And this week, as we look at chapter 10, we're going to talk about praying as beloved. Praying as beloved. All of these are essentials if you are going to be faithfully present in the city, which is our desire. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father. Right now, I pray that you would open up our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Would you wake us up if we are tired? And would you help us by your spirit to not only understand, but also embody and apply your word individually and also communally together as a church. This we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, question for you. Have you ever been walking through a grocery store and encountered that terrible sight of a small child that has lost his or her parents? Whenever I see this, it is invariably in the frozen food section and there is some child that is like shivering in the cold and can't get out and they're looking for his or her mother or father or maybe grandmother, eyes wide with fear, tears streaking down their face, trying to figure out how do I get my way back to my family? And I was talking with um, one of you all, a family here just before the nine o'clock service and when I asked them how their weekend went, they said, you know, it was pretty good except there was a 15 minute window of time on Saturday when we lost our two-year-old. And don't worry, they found him again, he's all good. Um, But that 15 minutes defined the entire weekend, right? And if you're a parent of young children, you know that fear. And if you are a young person, you might remember that fear of being the lost child. Um, there, I remember a number of years ago, uh, when I was actually 14 years old, our family took a trip to Disney World down in Florida. And there, our family accidentally left my five-year-old sister on a ride. We all got off. <clears throat> we made our way down the sidewalk. We're talking about how fun everything was and what a great time we're having until someone said those terrible words. Hey, where's Elise? And I watched my parents like look around, look at each other, and then I've never seen my dad move move faster. I mean, he just, he takes off sprinting down the sidewalk and a few minutes later he comes back with this little pigtail girl in his arms wrapped up in a bear hug. She's okay. We're all relieved and grateful to have her back and we kind of go along with our vacation. But what was that experience like for her? being abandoned, feeling all alone, feeling small and vulnerable and afraid, maybe even feeling a little bit hurt. Maybe your feelings hurt, people have forgotten about you. You know, the movie Home Alone is funny, but if you think about it, it's not funny, right? Why is that movie a comedy? It is a tragedy, right? (laughs) That kid's in therapy for years. Um, You know, a lot of us have experienced this kind of hurt and vulnerability as children. I mean, if you just think back in your own story, maybe you grew up in a family where parents or guardians or teachers or somebody maybe left you alone for long periods of time. Maybe neglect is actually a part of your story. Um, And maybe you actually still bear somewhere deep down within you this fear of being abandoned. I think the unspoken reality for many of us is that we still have this childlike vulnerability inside of us, really no matter how old you are. So whether you're a teenager or a college student or an adult, you still have this childlike vulnerability within you. And I recognize, let's just call a quick timeout. I recognize that speaking about having an inner child may sound like the kind of psychobabble that you would expect to hear from the likes of Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung. Uh, But listen, Even Jesus himself talks about the necessity of becoming like a child if you're going to come to God. And he says that not to kids, but to grownups. And I hear, listen, as I I talk with some of you, I hear echoes of this all the time. I hear you say things like, I'm 68, but I still feel like I'm 21. I still expect them to card me when I order a beer at a restaurant. I hear you say things like, I'm 18 and I'm a senior in high school, but I still feel like I'm 12 years old. I can't believe I'm about to graduate and go to college. So look, no matter how old you are, no matter what the age of your body or how young you might feel on the inside, we've all never quite gotten over the hurts and fears and sorrows and griefs of the vulnerability of our childhood. And so when you and I bring these kind of childlike sorrows to the Bible, you know what we find there? We find to our surprise and even our delight that there is a God there who meets his people in their sorrow and actually comforts them and reassures them. 
I mean, just think for a moment about the biblical story. You've got Abram and Sarai in their barrenness, in their longing for children. And what does God do? God meets them in their barrenness and actually provides for them. Think about Jacob in his fear that he is estranged from his family and that he's destroyed his relationship with his brother Esau forever. Think about Naomi and Ruth. As they return from the country of Moab, both of their husbands have died, and now they're coming back empty to their homeland. Think about David as he flees for his life from King Saul. Think about Solomon as he looks back on his life with regret and shame. Think about Jeremiah as he laments over the destruction of his hometown, city of Jerusalem. Think about, in the New Testament, Peter, after he denies Jesus and fails him, feels like he's made a mess of his life and he's, he's beyond recovery, he feels. And he goes back to fishing. Think about Paul and Silas as they suffer for God in prison. You see, time and again, all throughout the story of the Bible, God's people find themselves in situations where they're tempted to believe that God has forgotten them or maybe even deliberately abandoned them. And in their hurt and in their sorrow, God actually meets them and comforts them. And that's what's happening in Daniel chapter 10. Okay, if you want to understand this very strange chapter of the Bible, you've got to situate it within the larger story of God's people feeling abandoned and sorrowful and grieved and hurt and alone and vulnerable and afraid and a God who consistently meets his people in that vulnerability. Here's what's happening in the text. Daniel, this Old Testament prophet, has received a vision from God and it is not a good one. It's a vision of conflict. And so he's given a glimpse into the future and it's a bad future. It's one of violence and war and strife. God's people are not gonna do well. There's gonna be a lot of pain and suffering. And so his response to that, good, emotionally intelligent, normal response would be grief and mourning and lament. And that's what he does. He's in prayer for three solid weeks, 21 days. This entire chapter takes place in response to Daniel's prayers of lament. Prayer is the context of this whole situation. And then in the midst of that prayer and lament and mourning and grief and suffering anxiety, all the stuff, all the turmoil that Daniel feels on the inside, he has another terrifying vision. And this time it's an angelic figure, a man-like figure, and it overwhelms him. It like flattens him, crushes him to the ground. And this man-like figure, which is this angelic being, tells Daniel that he was sent by God in answer to Daniel's prayer, but that he got delayed for 21 days. That God sent a messenger to answer Daniel's prayer right away, but Daniel didn't receive the answer right away because there was some sort of spiritual conflict with, and the text says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. More on what that is later. And twice, this angelic figure lifts Daniel up and calls him greatly loved. And then the angelic being leaves him to return to battle, which is very interesting. It's a very strange chapter. So if you heard Lane read this a few minutes ago and you thought, see, this is why I don't go to church, right? You're normal. This falls well within what we might call apocalyptic literature, where the thin kind of papery veil that separates the natural and the supernatural realms, the material and the spiritual, gets pulled back and more of reality is revealed. And you gotta understand, I'm choosing those words very particularly on purpose. More of reality is revealed. In the history of the church, apocalyptic scripture, for all of its strangeness, is not understood as less real, but more real. So these parts of the Bible are not for like weird, nerdy geeks who are just like all into things like binge watching the Rings of Power on Amazon, right? Which, hot take, 
not that good, okay? Don't waste your time. Um, I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right, let's just close in prayer. Yeah. <laughs> no, but see, here's the point. These parts of the Bible are actually not for folks who are just all into fantasy. That's not who this is for. This is more real, not less real. It's for the straightforward, practical-minded people who just want to know the facts, who just want to know what's really going on. That's who apocalyptic literature is for. So if you're that kind of person, this is for you. And what we'll see as we look at this text in Daniel chapter 10, that in the context of his prayer, we see that prayer is both a supernatural struggle and also an inner struggle. That there's two sides to the coin here. There's a supernatural realm and then there's an inner realm. Let's talk about the supernatural realm first. Daniel, in his praying, has been engaging in a supernatural struggle, but he didn't know it. He was not aware of it. And so let's just name what that conflict or struggle is. There is, according to the text, a battle being waged between angelic beings and what scripture calls principalities or demons. In verse 13, you've got this angel, and we suspect the angel is Gabriel because that's the angel that God typically sends to Daniel earlier in the story. So we think that's who this is. So the angel Gabriel was hindered by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And this is one of those moments when you're reading the Bible and you just wanna know more than it actually tells you, right? Like, I still have questions. I imagine you do as well, and I'm not gonna get a lot of answers. But there are hints and clues sprinkled along the way, hinting that there are spiritual entities that lie beneath worldly entities, that there are spiritual empires that lie beneath worldly empires. And then at the end of verse 13, the archangel Michael comes to the angel Gabriel's rescue. Now, who is this? Well, this is, to the best of our knowledge, a more powerful angelic being who is mentioned actually five different times in the Bible in different places, both Old and New Testament. Um, and we, to the best of our knowledge, uh, get the idea that this archangel Michael is a chief angel specifically charged with taking care of and protecting God's people. Different angels appear to have different roles. Gabriel is a messenger. Michael is a warrior. You know, there's actually a statue of the Archangel Michael in Rome, Italy, over top of the Castel uh, San Angelo. And I know a number of you who have traveled to Italy have actually seen it. It's, it's stunningly gorgeous. Now, the Bible all along the way hints at echoes and clues of this supernatural conflict. You've got verses like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where the author says, Be alert, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or you've got Ephesians chapter six, where the apostle Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Or you've got 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I'm naming these because what you've got to understand is that this is a theme that runs all throughout the Bible that there is underneath the realm, the material realm that we perceive with our five senses, a supernatural realm, and that that realm is not peaceful. Uh, author named David Brenner puts it this way. A truly spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but a total commitment to reality. And so if you would like to be a person that is totally committed to reality, and I suggest that that's who you be, 
then you must be totally committed in belief in and respect for the supernatural realm. And in this, there are, there are really kind of two twin errors that we have to avoid, okay? Error number one would be a voyeuristic curiosity in the unknowable details of the supernatural, okay? An unhealthy voyeuristic curiosity in the unknowable details, meaning you really want to know more and you spend all of your time obsessing and focusing on and speculating and wondering what might be underneath these very small clues that we get in the Bible. That's one error. The other error would be a secularized dismissal of the supernatural that seeks only the personal and psychological and sociological benefits of Christianity, of which there are many, but finds the supernatural conflict between angels and demons, let's face it, embarrassing, right? This is why you're regretting bringing your friend to church this morning, right? You're like, can we please talk about Jesus and love? Can we stop talking about the embarrassing parts of the Christian faith, yeah? I feel it too. You might believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but only because resurrection is related to really positive sounding words like hope and joy and love, right? And you wanna kind of focus on those things. Let's not talk about this element. So a voyeuristic curiosity and a secularized dismissal. Let's avoid the twin errors. Uh, C.S. Lewis warns us of, the, of these two when he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So we've got to avoid those twin errors while continuing to pray in a supernatural struggle. Meaning, listen, your prayers are not primarily psychological, existing only in your mind and your emotions. Nor are your prayers primarily private and personal, only between you and God. Or are your, nor are your prayers primarily sociological, like seeking to change the world, right? No, your prayers actually transcend the natural material world and engage in a very real but unseen spiritual supernatural dimension. I'm gonna quote from David Brenner one more time. Our challenge is to unmask the divine in the natural and name the presence of God in our lives. And prayer is the human means by which we do that. Prayer is the human means by which we engage in the supernatural dimension. And that realm is not peaceful. It is fraught with conflict. And so, listen, apocalyptic scriptures are disturbing, and they especially disturb those who seek comfort above all else. Daniel was more than disturbed by this. And so if you are reading Daniel chapter 10 and you're initially looking for something comforting, initially, you're not gonna find it. And Daniel didn't find it either. He was disturbed, it would disturb you and I as well. In this text, the first thing we see is that prayer is a supernatural struggle. And that lost child that exists within each side, inside each, each one of us, we find that that is not a lost child in a grocery store, that is a lost child in a war. That is a child wandering around a battlefield, looking for its family, looking for a home. And there is shrapnel flying everywhere. Prayer is a supernatural struggle. But it is also, other side of the coin, an inner struggle, is it not? How, th think about what it might be like to be the Old Testament prophet Daniel in this situation. How long has he been in exile? Let's just pan out for a moment and do the context. He's an old man at this point in his life, 70s, maybe 80s. He has spent nearly all of his adult life as an exile. 
What of his family? Where are his parents? Where are his uncles and aunts and relatives? Are any of them still alive? Did most of them die in the war with Babylon back in Jerusalem decades ago? Does he have a wife and kids? Does he have any family at all? Are his friends even still alive? We don't know. Daniel seems to be a pretty isolated figure. Has God forgotten about him? Has God abandoned him? Here he's been faithful all these years, and now he's spending weeks in prayer, three weeks in prayer. And it's not just any kind of prayer, not just like, you know, getting down on your knees a couple times a day. He's fasting. He's adopted asceticism. I mean, he's really disciplining his body. If, uh, I mean, it says in the text that he ate no delicacies, ate no meat, drank no wine. And then it says he did not anoint himself. And we don't understand that because we live in Richmond, which is humid all the time, right? July in Richmond is to live inside of a dog's mouth. It's terrible. But he doesn't live in Richmond. He lives in the Middle East, right? What's that like? It's hot, it's arid, it's dry. If you don't anoint yourself with oil for even just one day, your skin is gonna crack and peel and get all dried out. And he hasn't done this for three weeks. So where is Daniel right now? His outer body is broken and old and weak. It is as his face is weathered, his skin is cracking and peeling, he's hungry and tired and thirsty. His outer body is as broken as his inner heart. Outside, he's an old man, a veteran politician, an executive. Inside, still a lost child. What we see in the prophet Daniel is that prayer is just as much an inner battle as it is a supernatural one. Because all of us, no matter what our experiences in life, are tempted to doubt our lovability, tempted to doubt our loveliness. And we all battle doubt the same way that Daniel did, battling doubt. Does God love me? Does God hear me? Am I just talking to the ceiling? Daniel is getting nothing from God for 21 days. Like, can I please get some comfort? Can I get some, can I just get some warm spiritual feelings? Can I get some sense of the presence of God? He's battling doubt. He's battling fear. I'm afraid of the suffering. I've given this vision of a violent future. I know that things are only gonna get worse. My life is downhill sloped, not uphill, right? Battling weakness. I can't keep going. My tank is on empty. I got nothing left in reserve. Battling impatience, waiting for God to answer, and yet waiting day after day after day. Listen, prayer is a struggle, and it's both a supernatural struggle and an inner struggle for the same reason, which is that we are unsure of our place in the world and unsure of our place with God. The supernatural struggle frightens us and the inner struggle drains us. Where is God? In the midst of angels and demons and politics and violence and empires out there, and in the midst of depression and doubt and despair and weakness and fear and vulnerability in here, where is God? Can I get a word from God, like a message, anything? Listen, if you can, God attends to both the supernatural struggle and the inner struggle, and he does so in the very same way because both are stemming from the same problem, which is your doubt of your own lovability, your doubt of where you stand with God and in this world. We've got to look very carefully at the language the angel Gabriel uses with Daniel, calling him twice greatly loved. You might not still have the text in front of you, but verse 18 says this, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Where have we heard this kind of language before? Y'all, this is an echo of 
all the ways that God speaks to the children of Israel throughout the story of the Bible. This is the way God talks to his people. And it reminds us in particular of the way God the Father speaks about God the Son, Jesus. You know, twice in the life of Jesus, the heavens open and the voice of God the Father speaks, calling Christ beloved. This happens at his baptism, when Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan. It also happens in the gospel text from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, that we just read a few minutes ago, where we have what is called the transfiguration, where God the Father, again, speaks the belovedness of the Son. And in God the Son, Jesus goes into a supernatural struggle against Satan and demons and death itself on the cross. Look, when you see a cross or a a crucifix, when you imagine the scene of Christ being crucified, that is a supernatural struggle, even as much as it is physical agony. And in his death by crucifixion, Jesus what? He loses. He loses. Christ, God, loses on the cross. But then what happens? In his loss, he subversively overcomes sin and Satan and demons and death. And in his resurrection, Jesus, God himself, becomes victorious. And so at the cross, God attends not only to the supernatural struggle in which we are caught, but also the inner struggle. And he does this with weakness and with sacrifice. Therefore, when you access the sacrifice of Jesus by faith and baptism, which unites you with Jesus, then the belovedness of Jesus that exists between God the Father and God the Son, you know what happens to it? It becomes yours. It is transferred to you. And the belovedness of Jesus becomes your belovedness. And the status of Jesus in relation to the Father and in the place in the world actually becomes yours. In Christ, you become the beloved. There's an old Catholic author named Henry Nouwen who has some really wonderful things to say about this in a book called The Life of the Beloved. And here's what he says. You and I have to keep unmasking the world around you for what it is. Manipulative, controlling, power-hungry, and in the long run, destructive. The world tells you many lies about who you are. And you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt or offended or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, as strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called beloved from all eternity, and held safe in an everlasting embrace. Now, if you're thinking to yourself right now, I don't feel embraced. (laughs) I hear you, but I don't don't feel embraced. Then maybe what you need to see and hear is actually um, something that, and this is very playful, but I see actually play out in the lives of of my kids and our family at home. Um, There is this kind of family joke that has developed over the years where whenever our kids are eating a meal at the table and Rachel and I are in the kitchen, maybe, you know, getting dessert ready or something, if I go over to my wife and I give her a hug or I give her a kiss, then usually one of our youngest children, one of our boys, will look over and see Rachel and I hugging each other and will shout out, did I miss the hug? And they'll get out of their seat and they'll sprint across the kitchen and then they'll like wiggle their way in between the two of us and then just kind of snuggle up in there. And, you know, it's kind of cute and a little bit silly. But what's happening in that moment? Well, 
the hope is that our kids would not only know that their lives are quite literally the fruit of our love, but also that they live and move and grow up in the safety and security of our love. And this, listen, this is not sentimentality. So at this point, you're like, you lost me, you're being too, you know, kind of mushy, like, stop. This is an echo of the fellowship of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together embraced in eternal fellowship and love. The Son, beloved of the Father. And through faith, you and I are included in that embrace. You and I nestle in, in the loving fellowship embrace between God the Father and God the Son made possible by the Spirit. Our lives are safely nestled in that love. And that is the context in which you and I pray. So when you go to God in prayer, you are praying as beloved. Is the supernatural struggle real? Yes. Is the inner struggle real? Yes. I had someone come, after me, uh, come up to, to me after the nine o'clock service and say, you need to retitle this sermon, The Struggle is Real. And I told them to leave me alone. Um, yes, those things are real, but what is even more real, the deeper reality, is that you are beloved. And whenever you go to the Lord in prayer, you are praying as beloved, which means that these words in verse 18, spoken by the angel Gabriel to Daniel, in Christ become true of you. O child, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Now, if that becomes true of you, then what is your prayer like? Will your prayers become filled with confidence? You are an adopted child of God. You may address your heavenly father with intimacy and security. It means you can pray without fear. God is already engaged in defending you. He knows the conflict, he fights for you. It means you can pray with peace. The inner struggle of anxiety and angst and turmoil, gets all, it gets real quiet, it gets subdued. You can pray with peace because you know who you are, you are beloved. It means you can pray with strength. What kind of strength? Your strength, no. The strength of the resurrected Christ that comes to dwell within you. It means you can pray with courage knowing that this battle, both inner and outer, belongs to the Lord. And it means praying with patience, knowing that an answer is actually coming, whether your wait is a week or 21 days like Daniel or even longer. There is an answer and it is coming your way. Let's end this way. If I can direct your attention to the cover art that is on the front of the liturgy that you received when you walked in, let's take a look at that. That lost child that we were talking about, the one that is lost in the frozen food section of the grocery store, the one that is left on the ride at Disney World, the lost child that we know is actually a lost child wandering about a battlefield in the midst of a war with shrapnel falling all around, that lost child within us that is paralyzed with fear and vulnerability and anxiety, this is a picture of that lost child coming home. You see the hands that extend above the child are hands that are pierced. And the nail holes of the cross are evidence of the sacrifice of love for this child. The piercings bear witness to the belovedness of this child. And if you like, you don't have to do this, but if you like, you can take this home with you, put it on your fridge or put it by your bedside table. And every time you look at it, you are reminded, this is you. You are the child. No matter how old you are or what stage of life you're in, you are the child that is welcome home because you are beloved of God. And the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ for you bears witness to your belovedness. It is as real as real can be.
It is a deeper reality than the outer supernatural struggle. It's a deeper reality than the deep angsty inner struggle. It is the most true thing about you. You are beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the love that you have for Jesus Christ, the Son, and that in him we become beloved as well. Would you help us to live and move and have our being in this deep reality? We pray in your name, amen.